0: Are are listening to a podcast of local news from the county of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity.
1: Hello and welcome to the 1947th edition of St Edmundbury News Talk for the 21st of September, 2023. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin. The producer is Harvey Johnson, and your readers are Jill Gain and Harvey Johnson. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Courts see backlog of 4,200 cases.
0: Pharmacy Wasteland fears as branches close across Suffolk.
1: New Leisure Centre and Hub set
0: to be cancelled. All in the name of Harley 16.
1: More than 4,000 cases are waiting to be heard at Suffolk's courts as the government says it will take swift action to address the backlog. Suffolk MP Peter Aldous and Police and Crime Commissioner Tim Passmore have spoken of the need for a long-term plan as the cases left outstanding continue to grow. The Crime Commissioner said, Justice delayed is justice denied. So collectively, we really do need to do far better to support victims and from my perspective as Police and Crime Commissioner, to reduce the impact on valuable police resources. Government figures show that at the end of the first quarter of 2023, Suffolk's magistrates' courts have a backlog of three thousand two hundred and sixty-six cases outstanding, and crown courts one thousand and eleven. In magistrates' courts, the cases received three thousand two hundred eighty-one amounted to more than cases that were dealt with and disposed of, three thousand one hundred and fifty-two. In Suffolk crown courts, the number of cases disposed of three hundred and sixty-five was much more than the cases received, 246, in the same quarter, but in 2022, the number of cases left outstanding reached more than 1,000 for the first time since 2014. The Waveney MP, Peter Alders, told the East Anglian Daily Times, the feedback from my constituents is the anguish they feel over how the courts are continuing to operate slowly. I have heard their experiences and been in discussions with the Police and Crime Commissioner over the frustrations of the force. Some of the cases are very traumatic for victims and the delays that they are experiencing in getting to court are causing an awful lot of distress. Tim Passmore, Suffolk Police and Crime Commissioner, added, I have been reassured that two new circuit judges will be available to preside at Ipswich Crown Court soon, which is positive news.
0: A Suffolk MP has expressed his concerns that the region, as well as the whole country, may soon move into a pharmacy wasteland. Peter Aldous, MP for Waveney, raised the issue of community pharmacies closing down and leaving residents without vital help in Parliament. According to the NHS, 222 pharmacies closed in England in the first six months of 2023, including six in Suffolk. Speaking in the House of Commons, Mr Alders said, Community pharmacies are embedded in all our communities. They are the silent partners of the health and care system, and we've probably taken them for granted. All of a sudden, there are fewer of them on our high streets, and there is a danger. We've had dentistry deserts, and we might be moving towards a situation of pharmacy wastelands. The MP added that community pharmacies play an important role, which was seen during the pandemic with vaccinations, as well as during colder seasons with flu jabs and Covid boosters. The problem of community pharmacies shutting down has also affected Suffolk. In January, Lloyd's Pharmacy confirmed it was closing its outlets inside Sainsbury's stores in Ipswich, Sudbury, Bury St Edmunds and Haverhill. A spokesman for community Pharmacy Suffolk said... Pharmacies have been steadfast on the high street for years. Now their viability is in jeopardy. We've lost six Suffolk pharmacies this year alone, and sadly there will be more. Financial pressures, medicine supply issues, a workforce crisis, and regulatory reforms are needed urgently to provide hard-working teams with the support they require and deserve.
1: Plans for a multi-million pound public services hub with a new leisure centre in Bury St Edmunds are set to be cancelled due to costs. Instead, the existing Bury St Edmunds Leisure Centre, which opened in 1975, would be revamped by West Suffolk Council with the aim to add another 10 years of life to the facility. On Friday, the council said the hub plans, which have cost the authority £2.4 million so far, would be paused to look at alternatives. However, a Cabinet report released on Tuesday said it was proposed to cancel the project. Councillor Cliff Waterman, leader of the Council, said the hub was a potential financial risk during the national economic crisis. The Western Way development, initially budgeted up to £140 million, which was gradually whittled down following changes to the proposals, underseen by the previous Conservative administration, was envisaged in October 2018 to house public services, including health, under one roof as well as about 6,000 square metres of commercial office space. The facility would have reused the steel frame of the Council's depot building in Olding Road and an adjoining warehouse. The authority is to draft proposals and options for the Olding Road site early next year as well as the former warehouse clearance superstore in Anglian Lane, which its predecessor, St Edmundsbury Borough Council, bought for one point seven one million in November 2018. Councillor Waterman, leader of West Suffolk Council, which is now run by a coalition following this year's elections, said they had taken the decision to be prudent, to avoid a big debt and prevent financial difficulties which have blighted councils such as Thurrock, Woking and Birmingham. It gives us an enormous opportunity now because we've still got the Olding Road site and we've got the opportunity to do something exciting with that, he said. Nick Clark, leader of the Conservative Group, said residents promised a replacement leisure centre would be hugely disappointed that it had been cancelled without any public consultation. In an open letter to Councillor Waterman... Councillor Clarke added, At a stroke, you have killed the concept of community hubs in West Suffolk. You are signalling that we are now a backwards-looking council with a complete lack of ambition who can't keep their side of a deal. Berry St. Edmonds MP Joe Churchill said the decision to shelve the project was undeniably short-sighted. On Friday, West Suffolk Council said it would refurbish the centre using an existing £724,000-a-year budget.
0: A statue made up of more than 100,000 knives is set to visit a Suffolk town next year to highlight the dangers of knife crime following a 16 year old stabbing death in January. The Knife Angel, a sculpture made up of tens of thousands of seized blades, will visit Haverhill in September 2024. Darrell Barfield has worked for the past four months to bring the statue to the town following the death of his teenage son, Harley Barfield. Harley was stabbed on January the 9th in the West Suffolk town and was initially taken to Addenbrooke's hospital before passing away at Royal Papworth Hospital two days later. Another 16-year-old boy has been charged with Harley's murder and is awaiting trial. Mr Barfield has wanted to bring the knife angel to the town to highlight the dangers of crime and prevent anything from happening again. He said, I want to fight everything. I want to stop knife crime, stop another child from being killed. I want to highlight the dangers of county line drug dealing, domestic violence, mental health problems, alcohol abuse and drug abuse. I want it all to stop where Suffolk MP Matt Hancock invited Mr Barfield to the House of Parliament on Thursday, where they took pictures with the official pre-host acceptance award for the angel. Mr Hancock said, The Knife Angel is not just a beautiful memorial, but a sculpture that delivers an incredibly powerful and important message. I look forward to welcoming the angel to Suffolk, so we can further highlight the devastation knife crime causes, as well as remember those who have tragically lost their lives.
1: And now to our general news section. St Edmundsbury Cathedral is developing a bit of an animal theme with two upcoming services, including furry friends. The first service, on Sunday, October the 1st, will be Suffolk's County Harvest Festival. The cathedral will be open to visitors from 12 noon, beginning with Farming Live, an interactive demonstration from Suffolk Farmers. Farmers' machines will be on the cathedral grounds and there will be live talks about farming. The Suffolk Trinity, a Suffolk punch horse, red pole cattle and Suffolk sheep will be present. Later, children from Wethering Set School will take part in the harvest service at 2pm led by the Right Reverend Martin Seeley, Bishop of St Edmundsbury in Ipswich. Mark Murphy, former Radio Suffolk presenter, will be Master of Ceremonies, interviewing special guests on the theme of living water. The Very Reverend, Joe Hawes, Dean of St Edmundsbury Cathedral, said, We're thrilled to welcome the County Harvest Festival back to the cathedral this year. The festival brings Suffolk together to give thanks for what has been gathered from land and sea. All are welcome. The Harvest Festival is organised in collaboration with Lightwave, A Christian community whose work includes food banks, youth work, environmental initiatives and pastoral care for the farming community. Donations of food will be very welcome. The second animal-themed service is on Sunday October 8th at 2pm with visitors encouraged to bring along their pets. The pet service will offer the chance to reflect and receive a blessing for their animals. Attendees can bring a photograph if they feel they cannot bring their pet. There will also be time to remember the pets we've loved and lost. The Reverend Anita Rooney, Cathedral Curate, said, This is a fun service with a heartfelt message. Pets can be incredibly important in our lives. We'd really love to see people bring their pets in and we'll embrace the chaos that may ensue.
0: (laughs) Incredible photographs of the Northern Lights were captured in a rare sighting above Suffolk. The natural phenomenon, also known as Aurora Borealis, is typically seen nearer to the Arctic Circle in locations such as Norway and Iceland. The Northern Lights were captured across the county in places such as Sudbury, Martlesham and Bury St Edmonds. BBC Look East weather presenter Dan Holly captured the Northern Lights in South Norfolk. He said the aurora was not very visible with the naked eye and used an eight-second exposure on his camera. The spectacle is caused by atoms and molecules in our atmosphere colliding with particles from the sun, according to the Royal Museum's Greenwich. The wavy patterns of light are caused by the lines of force in the Earth's magnetic field, and the different colours are made by different gases. The green is characteristic of oxygen, while the purple, blue or pink are caused by nitrogen.
1: A Suffolk farmer who evaded justice for seven months after being convicted of swindling creditors out of more than £500,000, has been jailed. Wayne Parker had spun a web of deceit and made promises to creditors based on fiction and lies, Judge Nicola Talbot Hadley told Ipswich Crown Court. She jailed Parker, who failed to attend his scheduled hearing in February, for five years. She said his business was reckless from the start and it was obvious he had no financial wherewithal and had taken on too much with no capital or savings to fall back on. Parker, formerly of Mildenhall, now of Hazelgrove Feltham, denied participating in a fraudulent business with intent to defraud creditors by incurring debts between February 2018 and May 2020, but was convicted after a three-week trial last autumn. The court heard that in October last year, he had admitted 19 animal welfare offences and in addition to being jailed, he was given an indefinite ban from owning or keeping animals. Judge Talbot Hadley said Parker would have to wait at least five years before he could apply for the ban to be lifted.
0: Residents living near a proposed 485 home development and Relief Road on the edge of Berry St Edmunds have raised concerns over the plans. Noise, loss of open space and overlooking are some of the issues raised over a hybrid planning application for 24.2 hectares of land in Bury St Edmunds West off Newmarket Road. Developers Pigeon Investment Management Limited have submitted full plans for construction of a relief road, including new junction works with Newmarket Road, Westley Road and Hill Road, Westley, alongside outline plans for four hundred eighty five homes with open space, landscaping, and infrastructure, but one of the questions raised by Robert Davy of Boroughs Orchard, Westley regarded ownership of land for the relief road. Previous plans for the site drafted by Pigeon in july twenty nineteen included the same number of homes. However, that scheme proved controversial as it included just parts of a relief road due to ownership of the land. The new application to West Suffolk Council includes a complete relief road, with access via roundabouts in Newmarket Road and Westley Road, along with a substantial green buffer on the western edge of the site. Mr Davies said, Has Pigeon secured acceptance from the Landover for building on or no? Purchased the land to the south of the existing public right of way? The entire relief road must be fully installed from Newmarket Road to Wesley Road. He also queried the proposed double mini roundabout at Wesley Road, suggesting a single roundabout instead, and asked for clarity on future intentions for land left over following a relief road's construction. Jake Game of nearby Oliver Road labelled the plans absolutely stupid and horrendous. Steve Biggs of Bennett Avenue said the proposed new market road roundabout was extremely close to existing busy junctions. Robert Pixley of Burroughs Orchard objected on grounds including the proposed road's proximity to Burroughs Orchard and heavy goods vehicle noise. And Kachina Hindle of Green Road said, One of the joys of the Wesley estate is having the wonderful field to walk through, a peaceful area to get away to. I don't believe destruction of even more natural land is the best decision to be made here.
1: A stowmarket man is amongst five former Metropolitan Police officers who have all admitted to sending grossly offensive racist messages on WhatsApp. Alan Hall, 65, entered guilty pleas to three counts of sending by public communication grossly offensive racist messages. He retired from the Met in June 2015. The former officers entered their guilty pleas at Westminster Magistrates Court last Thursday. According to the charges, some of the messages shared in the chat referenced the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, the Prince and Princess of Wales, the late Queen and Prince Philip, the late Duke of Edinburgh, as well as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, former Home Secretary Priti Patel, and former Health Secretary Sajid Javid. The charges, which relate to messages shared between September 2020 and 2022, come after a BBC Newsnight investigation in October last year. The officers, who retired between 2001 and 2015, charged by post with offices under the Communications Act 2003. The five men were not serving at any point during their participation in the group, the Met made clear. It added that they served in various parts of the Met throughout their careers and all spent time, it is what now known as the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command. Another former Met officer, Michael Chadwell, denied one count of sending by public communication grossly offensive racist messages. The 62-year-old from Lys Hampshire will stand trial on November the 6th. The other five will be sentenced on the same day and same court after the conclusion of Chadwell's trial.
0: The town's residents have reacted to the news of its post office closing. A post office spokesperson confirmed last week that the operator for Mildenhall post office has resigned and the branch is due to close next summer. One resident responded to the recent news, Oh my goodness, this is another nail in Mildenhall's coffin. Another said, What is happening with the town? This is very sad. Other responses said Mildenhall was like a ghost town, and that the closure was ridiculous and awful. The news comes after the original factory shop closed in Mildenhall in August, Barclays Bank, shut its branch on the high street and the Wilco store is closing its doors in October. Another post office remains open in Mildon Hall in the Morrison store in St John's Close. One resident wrote, I feel very sorry for the staff at the Morrisons because they're going to be very busy and although they don't do everything that the other post offices currently do, they're going to need chairs for the queuing.
1: An 80-year-old University of East Anglia graduate with over 60 years experience of nursing has been given a special award. Leslie Williams of Bury St Edmunds received an honorary fellowship at this year's scholarship reception, a title that recognizes her career in the service of others and her commitment to the university. She continues to offer nursing care in her community, teaching several fall prevention classes a week on top of her role as parish nurse in Bury St Edmunds, providing palliative care, among other services. Since the 1980s, Leslie has been a regular visitor to UEA. She said, UEA has been an integral part of fueling my passion towards nursing. I love coming here regularly and talking to the student nurses. This is part of my world, so I am just absolutely thrilled that they have honoured me in such a special way. When I come back to UEA, I'm always struck by how much has changed, but also how much remains the same, namely the passion of the students to make a difference. Leslie celebrated her 60th year of nursing by creating a UEA scholarship in her name for a postgraduate course which started at UEA in 2021 and was joined at the reception event by the first Leslie Williams Master's Scholar in Nursing. Catherine Lever. Leslie said, Training, inspiring and supporting the next generation of nurses and healthcare workers is especially crucial now with the rise in health challenges all over the world. I firmly believe that giving students an extra boost to widen local and international knowledge assists them in gaining confidence and enables their personal advancement, ultimately making a difference in their patient care, especially in the care of the elderly. I wanted to create this scholarship to broaden student awareness and make a positive change for the future. I have no doubts that UEA will support the students during their studies. Catherine added, Leslie's inspirational story and vast experience shows what can be achieved with the passion and drive to make a difference. In Suffolk, Leslie has held a variety of ward-based and teaching roles including staff nurse, ward sister. Clinical Teacher, Senior Nurse Tutor, Nurse Consultant and Director of Post-Registration Education.
0: A much-loved community school that has grown over the years is excited to be celebrating its milestone 50th anniversary. Thurston Community College near Harrison St Edmonds first opened as Thurston Upper School in September 1973 under the leadership of Headmaster Mr Napier with building work still taking place. Since then it has thrived and grown in size. There are now over 1,600 students on the roll over two campuses, including a specialist sixth form centre at the former Bayton Middle School site. The celebrations come as building works finish on a new purpose-built block at the college's main school site on Norton Road, Thurston. The new block houses two state-of-the-art science labs and three additional teaching spaces with student numbers set to grow over the coming years. Celebrations began on September the 4th with an event attended by current and former staff, including former head teacher Richard Fawcett, who led Thurston Upper between 1986 and 2001. Mr Fawcett said, This is quite a milestone for our much loved community school. Over Thurston's 50 years, more than 15,000 students will have attended from the 250 square miles of its extensive catchment area. I still think back to the 22 or so buses arriving and leaving each day, each filled with young people brimming with their hopes and aspirations. It was a huge privilege for me to be head teacher for 14 years. I'm sure the college will continue play a key role in providing for the success of young people both academically and through the many sporting, performing arts, social and other opportunities offered by its dedicated staff. I wish all of them well. Students, staff and visitors to the College can learn all about the history of the building and its former inhabitants in a special display housed in the main corridor throughout the next half term. A 50th anniversary web page on the College's website also continues to grow, with nearly 200 images, including programmes from across the years, accompanied by memories from former staff and students, including those who attended on the very first day in 1973.
1: A garden commemorating those who died as a result of the Covid pandemic, or who were affected by it, will be officially dedicated on Tuesday. Newmarket's Covid commem- Commemoration Garden within the War Memorial Garden near the Clock Tower has been funded by the Town Council, helped by a £5,000 grant from Public Health Suffolk's Covid Memorialisation Project Team. The aspiration was to provide a space for quiet reflection, to celebrate our coming together in a time of adversity, remember those who are lost and give thanks for our community, said Newmarket Town Clerk, Cathy Whitaker. All residents are invited to attend the 11 a.m. ceremony when there will be a short memorial service remembering those who were lost and affected by the pandemic, followed by refreshments at All Saints Church when guests will have a chance to talk and share experiences. Further annual commemoration ceremonies will then be held every year in March on the anniversary of the first lockdown. The garden consists of two flower beds planted with rosemary for remembrance and roses. There will also be a notice board with information gleaned from residents about what helped them during the pandemic and there will be a granite memorial bearing the words of Alfred Lord Tennyson. If I had a flower for every time I thought of you, I could walk through my garden forever.
0: A 91-year-old who dedicated his life to memorialising a second World War bomber group recently got the opportunity to visit the gallery he curated decades ago. The 447th Bombardment Group Heritage Gallery tells the story of the US airmen who flew missions out of RAF Rattlesden in the closing days of the war. These included two of the most daring operations of 1944, the Big Week raids on Germany and the Normandy landings. The Heritage Gallery, located at the Rattlesden Air Base, is run by the 447th Bombardment Group Association. Ernie Osborne, a 91-year-old resident of Glastonbury Court Care Home in Bury, formerly served as official historian for the association. In this role, he amassed documentation and photographs and interviewed surviving veterans. A large amount of this material is now featured in the Rattlesden Heritage Gallery, which Mr Osborne helped to curate 40 years ago. Glastonbury Court staff recently took Mr Osborne to the gallery for a surprise visit. He was given a tour of the premises by Roger Watts, the chairman of the 447th Bomb Group Association, and members of the association's committee. Mr Osborne said of the visit, "'I couldn't believe everyone had given up their time to see me. "'It was amazing to see everyone.' and I felt quite emotional to see my collection being showcased for others to enjoy. Glastonbury Court's home manager, Anna Mihai, said, when Ernie received his special invitation to visit the Heritage Gallery that he contributed so much of his life to, the team here at Glastonbury Court quickly got to work helping to plan his special visit. Ernie is always sharing memories from his time living through the Second World War, and his time spent collating documents for the 447th Bomb Group Association. So, he was delighted to be able to go back and see those historical memories being kept safe for future generations. I'd like to extend a big thank you to the team at the 447th Bomb Group Association for making Ernie's day. He hasn't stopped talking about it since. A private hospital has received an award in
1: recognition of its patient data collection methods. St Edmund's Hospital has been named a quality data provider by the National Joint Registry, known as NJR. As part of an NJR initiative, staff have been monitoring joint replacement surgery patients with the aim of improving clinical outcomes and care quality. St Edmund's Executive Director, Peter Lord, said... Patient safety is at the heart of our approach to caring for patients across Bury St Edmunds and further afield. We continue to work closely with our colleagues at the NJR to ensure that we continue to meet the needs of the patients in our care. The hospital's Director of Clinical Services, Carol Rose, said, Improving patient safety is of the utmost importance and something all staff take very seriously. We fully support the National Joint Registry's work in facilitating improvement in clinical outcomes and governance for the benefit of joint replacement patients.
0: A carpet manager who has been working for a successful Barrison Edmunds furnishing store is celebrating 50 years of service. Graham Vale started his career at Glasswells as a furniture shifter, rearranging furniture around the store in St Andrew Street in 1973. In 1979, Mr Vale helped open a new store in Sudbury and has been selling carpet and flooring ever since. When the carpet department moved to the huge showroom on Newmarket Road in Bury St. Edmunds in 1998, Mr Vale was appointed its deputy manager. Mr Vale said, Five decades of service is an achievement I'm proud of. Doesn't time fly by? It's been an incredible journey and I have to give thanks to Glasswell's and all my wonderful colleagues for all the opportunities I've been given. Managing Director Paul Glasswell called Mr Vale an incredibly kind, reliable and hard-working man. Mr Glasswell added, His comprehensive knowledge is an asset to Glasswell's and our customers, as well as the department. He's always willing to accept a challenge and help everyone within the team overcome anything that the customers and their flaws put in front of us. He's been invaluable to our success in becoming the largest carpet retailer in Suffolk. Throughout the years, Mr Vale has trained all colleagues within the department, promoting his incredible leadership skills and sharing his wealth of experience. His co-workers said that Mr Vale's kind and charming nature makes him a lovable character who overcomes challenges with very little fuss and ensures every job is done to the highest quality. They added, "He is a true role model to the new generation of Glasswell's employees." Mr. Vale's knowledge, expertise, and customer interactions make his service one of the best in Glasswell's. It is no surprise that customers often return to the Beresnham and Showroom requesting Mr. Vale's help with their next flooring project. Mr. Vale will be celebrating his milestone at Glasswell's with a gift of holiday vouchers.
1: We begin our letters section this week with Barry editors Barry Peters, editor of the Barry Free Press, and his reaction to the news of the cancellation of plans for a new leisure centre. So, the cost-of-living crisis has seen its first major victim locally. The long-awaited new leisure centre and public service hub for Barry St Edmunds is facing the axe, with the existing 1975 leisure centre building in line for a revamp. This will add another 10 years to its lifespan. A war of words has already erupted. Tories have weighed in to the proposal, attacking the new ruling group, while the new council leader talks of prudence in the face of economic pressure. Councillor Cliff Waterman doesn't make it clear if any other projects will be looked at and scrapped or say if other areas of expenditure are being considered. He says the project itself was over-ambitious. Now, let's try to put aside party politics. There will be enough points scoring going on elsewhere. This is about people. The members, those young swimmers, the OAPs who are keeping their aching bones moving sensibly, and the users who enjoy an occasional class. There's little joy for members who are expecting a shiny new centre. That said, there's absolutely no sense of being hamstrung with a bill no one can pay. This political football will continue to be knocked around before it's presumably kicked into the long grass. In sporting terms, it feels a bit like running half of the 100 metres, only to be brought back for a false start.
0: Our next letter is a plea to local councils written by Francis May and received via email. Francis says, Here we go again. How on earth can Suffolk County Council justify a shortfall stroke overspend of £22.3 million? All this money Councils have in reserve. Yes, we need some for extenuating circumstances, or are we waiting for a repeat of the last financial crisis when mid-Suffolk lost millions of public money that have been placed in, if I remember correctly, an Icelandic bank? Every day you can see the Council wasting precious funds in Abbey Gardens replaced in its entirety, now closing for another week because of a council error. Last summer the grass was being cut in the gardens when there wasn't any. The moor was primarily used to create a dust bath, but no, it carried on regardless. Everyone's favourite potholes? You briefly celebrate one being filled, only to find a week later it's returned. On and on and on. I'm sure everyone has similar stories. Don't look at the general public to keep bailing you out. Get your own house in order first, then you might find the public to be more sympathetic.
1: David Chaplin of Horringer asks Different attitudes, perhaps? With regard to the controversy about campervans annexing part of Undercliff Road, Felixstowe, it is obvious that this situation is an organised arrangement for their leisure. I wonder what the response would be if members of the travelling community park there, would they be given the same freedom as the current crop of itinerants?
0: D. Bruce of Stoopland addresses a strike by consultants, saying, I've never written to a newspaper before, but sadly feel that I must write to express my frustration with the current consultant strike. Don't get me wrong, the NHS is a marvellous asset to our country, and its wheels are turned by super hard working, dedicated teams from cleaners to admins, from care assistants to consultants. I thank it for all it has done for me. However, many of us are feeling the pinch in current times, and many also work long hours, often without the added benefits of working for something like the NHS. All of us have lives to lead and plans to make. I am one of hundreds of thousands whose surgery will be cancelled on October 3rd by the forthcoming consultant strike. My surgeon is not striking, but will not be able to run theatre without the rest of the team. His lovely secretary has warned me that the official cancellation will not be made firm until the week before. So what should I do about work and commitments? I'm fortunate enough to have dogs and horses. How do I plan their care for the three months post-surgery that I will be unable to do them? I can't afford to pay for something I don't need and I can't ask someone to work and then let them down days before. My long-suffering employers must factor in my absence and arrange cover and I hate continually messing them around. This is without the added inconvenience of not being able to plan for anything, not even the trivialities. I'm fortunate that my surgery is not life-saving, although it will be life-enhancing. Having the surgery on my spine will hopefully give me the full use of my right leg back and mean that I no longer live in a painful, foggy world on a cocktail of drugs. My heart goes out to those whose lives depend on their operation. Thank you for your time.
1: Ron Hall, an RNIB ambassador suggests that it's a good idea to connect to RNIB's radio station. When I was a youngster growing up in Essex, I was sports mad. I was about eight when I was playing football. Went down to head the ball and another lad went up with his foot and basically knocked me out. It detached my retina and I lost the sight in one eye. Earlier this year, I was lucky enough to appear on the ITV2 show, Winter Love Island, ...and I was able to talk about how sight loss has affected me more publicly. This resulted in me becoming an ambassador... ...for the Royal National Institute of Blind People, RNIB... ...which offers amazing support to people across the UK with sight loss. One of the ways it reaches out and brings people with sight loss together... ...is through its dedicated radio station, RNIB Connect Radio. The station turns 20 this year and I'm delighted to say I was asked to guest edit a day of special programmes broadcast on Wednesday, September 20th. The reason I wanted to take part is to let more people know about RNIB Connect Radio and the brilliant work it does. The station started in 2003 as a tiny online broadcaster, but now reaches over 90,000 listeners and its podcasts are downloaded over 20,000 times each month. It's DJs, who all have sight loss, broadcast a huge range of programmes alongside an eclectic mix of music, quizzes and news. So please help spread the word. Tune in and get to know RNIB Connect Radio. RNIB Connect Radio can be heard on Freeview 730 and online at www.rnib.com dot org dot uk forward slash connect hyphen radio this information will be repeated at the end of the recording
0: michael michelak of burwell writes that intensive farming is harming wildlife over the last few decades our countryside has been decimated on an industrial scale and huge swathes of our once green and pleasant land has been reduced to a chemically cleansed desert. The clamour for tax-funded subsidies and land clearance grants has seen hundreds of miles of ancient hedgerows grubbed out and flower-rich grasslands going under the plough to create the lifeless prairies we see today. The agrochemical industry and its shareholders grow fat at the expense of everything we once held dear. Birds, wildflowers and once common butterflies have been driven to the point of extinction, while runoffs from the fields have left rivers and streams as little more than toxic soup, heralding a dramatic decline in frogs, newts, and the shoals of minnows and other small fish once found in such abundance. The advent of the intensive farming revolution, much of which is in the hands of big business interests, has had a devastating effect on the environment the wildlife that has enriched our countryside for centuries has now become alien. Modern farming will no longer tolerate it. It is the victim of the sprays, the fertilisers, the giant machines and the sheer relentless pressure to maximise output from every hedge, bank and field corner. One day, a new generation will question the nightmare we will leave behind, the making of which continues unabated.
1: Eddie Dougal from Walsham-le-Willows writes about closing Labour branch as boundaries change. Mid-Suffolk Rural Branch Labour Party is now wound up. As a result of parliamentary boundary changes, it is forced to close, as the area covered by the branch is now divided between two constituency Labour parties, Waverney and Bury St Edmunds. So what to do with the funds in our bank account? It is well known that food banks throughout the country are finding it difficult to meet the increasing demands on their resources. The unprecedented rise in the cost of living has left more and more individuals and families struggling even to put food on their tables. Conscious of this, at our very last branch meeting, I proposed that we donate the entire amount in our bank account to Stowmarket Food Bank. A vote was taken and this was approved unanimously. On September 12th, I was pleased to present the MSR branch cheque for £540 to Mike Smith, Food Bank
0: Manager. Graeme Day of Stowmarket uh, says, Susan's trip to Suffolk Coast was a treat. What an excellent programme Susan Calman's Summer by the Sea was, where she visited Southwold and Thorpe Ness. Susan has the ability to put people at their ease, and with her funny anecdotes and carefree approach, she makes the programmes high on information and full of interest. This recently broadcast programme had everything. The iconic beach huts at so- Southwold and the pier with its idiosyncratic amusements. I wondered, however, what had happened to the whacker banker amusement we'd seen a few years ago with a visitor from Kent, who knew about the amusements and wanted to see them. The lighthouse, as I recall from a trip with French students, offers fantastic views of the town and seascape. Added to the equation boating on the mere at Thorpe Ness, with its connection with J. Barry, and beach coits with soberly attired designer J. Rayner, there were all the ingredients of an absorbing programme, which just flashed by. Perhaps on another visit there'd be room to mention the brewery, and also the sterling efforts of dedicated volunteers to reconstruct the much-missed Southwold Railway at Steamworks in Southwold, and the old station at Blytheborough, both of which are very well worth seeing. Well done to Susan, however, for an excellent programme.
1: Clifford Davy of Stowmarket has written a tribute to a fine local bobby. I was saddened to read in the announcements from the East Anglian Daily Times on August the 10th of the death of Chris Dennis Davis. Chris was, for many years, a local policeman when Bobbies walked the beat. We often stopped and chatted when we saw each other in town, and over the years I was pleased to call him a friend. He came to see me late one evening with a request to appear in an identification parade. They needed men of my build with a beard, at a time when beards were still uncommon, not like the ten-a-penny whiskers of today. The police force in general get poor publicity in present times, but I would hope many officers still provide the steady, honest dedication that PC Dennis Davis provided in those far-off days. Incidentally, I didn't get picked out in the identification
0: parade. Turning to politics, Colin Rossini writes, Could it be the tethered Tory tin hats of the right are more rattled by polls, consistently showing a 60% public approval for return to the EU than they are by China? The UK overestimates its influence in global summits post-Brexit. We are increasingly like an over-fortified manor house guarded by roundheads. The real threat to the UK is its internal politics. An unhinged psychodrama designed to deceive the public yet again.
1: Ian Smith of Beresford and Edmunds writes, Brexit's voters weren't misled. In his letter from the East Anglian Daily Times on September the 2nd, Bob Hogger claims that most who voted Brexit now say they feel they were misled. Does he not mean that they, like me, Feels disappointed at the way Brexit has been dis- delivered and the final outcome, rather than being misled. But hey, what do I know? I keep being told I'm in denial.
0: We end this section of Letters with Chatterbox, a weekly look at what readers of the Berry Free Press are saying on social media. News at Wilco's stalls will soon be closing across Suffolk, got people tapping away at their keyboards. The Berries and Edmunds branch shut on Sunday as part of the closure of 124 stores. Over 9,000 people will be made redundant due to the collapse of the chain, with the remaining stores in Ipswich, Thetford and Mildenhall to shut their doors by early October. Darren Squires said people should think about the staff. He said, spare a thought for the staff while you're grabbing your bargains. Tracy Tate agreed and added... My thoughts of all the staff. All those working in the berry store have given years of loyal service and so friendly whenever I go in. Sam Tate said devastated. We've always gone to on the way back to the car or home. My thoughts are with the lovely staff. Thank you for everything. Gillian Hale added, So sorry for the lovely staff. I do wish you all the best. And thank you for your service. It was very much appreciated. And Lynn Whiting said, certainly know how this feels, as we went through it all with Debenhams, wishing you all the best for the future.
1: Our feature article this week looks at the man whose name has gone down in history as the man who discovered the iconic Sutton Hoo ship burial. But that was just part of the story. Barbara Eels walks in his footsteps in the place he called home. Hope you have good finds today, wrote May Brown to her husband Basil. It would be nice to come across something really good and uncommon. (laughs) Little did she know it, but self-taught archaeologist Basil Brown was about to make history. On that day in May 1939, he was on the brink of unearthing one of the greatest discoveries ever made in the UK. A few days before, he had cycled away from their cottage and pedalled off down the village street to begin his second spell of excavations at Sutton Hoo. May was replying to a letter that began, I have no real news. But as he dug deeper, with meticulous care, into a huge mound he suspected contained an important burial, the true significance began to come clear. Under the earth lay the ghostly outline of an enormous ship, the last resting place of an Anglo-Saxon king. Later excavations led by Cambridge academics would reveal the iconic Sutton Hoo treasure. The story has been told in many ways, recently in the film The Dig, which is based on a novel of the same name and includes fictional characters and events. But in a new book, produced for the local history group in Rickinghall where Basil Brown lived most of his 89 years, we hear a different voice – Basil himself. It reveals, from a uniquely personal point of view, the extraordinary life's work of a man whose ability to identify historic sites made him an archaeological legend. Author Sarah Doig lives in part of the former school where Basil began his education. Her kitchen was his infant's classroom. She has trawled painstakingly through his handwritten diaries, letters and records, and the memories of those who knew him, to tell his story. Her book, The Real Basil Brown, was written on path behalf of Catrefoil, which researches the history of the Ricking Halls, Inferior and Superior, Bottersdale and Redgrave. It is subtitled, from Ricking to Hall, to Sutton Hoo and back because there was far more to Basil than his world-famous discovery. Even before his first digs at Sutton Hoo in 1938, he was already the area's go-to man for archaeology and history, says Sarah. Even today, she found local archaeologists say that wherever they go, Basil got there first. He continued to be a local hero, thought of with pride and affection for the rest of his life. Sarah says the book could not have been written without fellow Catrafoil members, Jean Sheehan and Di Maywort, who have spent years collecting information about Basil and in 2007 organised an exhibition about him in St Mary's Church. They invited visitors to write down their memories which were a prime source of anecdotes and tributes. Basil was famous for cycling everywhere. He never owned a car even setting off to travel the 30 plus miles to Sutton Hoo on his bike although some wonder if at times he went to Mellis Station and did the rest of the trip by train. I can't disassociate Basil from his bike wrote one exhibition visitor. It was almost part of his anatomy and I never knew a man who could cycle so slowly without falling off. Actor Ralph Fiennes who went to great lengths to research his role as Basil in the dig, came to Rickinghall and had lunch with Di and Jean before cycling all the way to Sutton Hoo. Basil did, though, make the occasional exception by catching the bus to Berry, Where today's archaeologists would use drones, Jean was told he travelled upstairs on the double-decker for a better view of the changes in soil and crop colour caused by underlying remains. Another who knew him in later life, recalled his crumpled tweed jacket, flat cap, small round glasses and false teeth that clattered as they tried to keep up with his animated jaw. Visitors to the Browns' home remembered parts of it were like a fascinating museum and that books overflowing from his many bookcases were piled on the floor, much to May's disgust.
0: That's what makes his book unique from any other that has been written about Basil real memories from people who knew him, says Sarah. Above all else, Basil is remembered for his constant willingness to make time for children and enthuse them about archaeology, says Sarah. Working away quietly, he was a huge inspiration to a whole new generation. Wherever he was digging, he made sure he always had children working alongside him. He was also a guiding light for archaeologists like Stanley West, who led the excavation and eventual reconstruction of the Anglo-Saxon village at West Stow? Today, a wander down the street in Rickinghall is full of reminders of Basil, including the farmhouse where he spent some of his early life, and later succeeded his father as tenant-farmer. Further along is a terraced cottage called Cambria, which was home to him and May, where Caterfoyle recently attached a blue plaque and, where in a subtle tribute, the door knocker is shaped like a tiny spade. Outside the door of St Mary's Church is an ancient stone container he unearthed nearby, possibly a font or a water tank, and now filled with plants. The Brown family came to Rickinghall when Basil was a few months old. His father worked at Church Farm, and later took over the tenancy. It was a precarious living and Basil began working on the farm the day after he left school. He was judged medically unfit to serve in the First World War, no reason was given, but towards the end of the war enrolled in the Medical Corps as a volunteer. May and Basil met in Cromer and began married life at Church Farm. In 1935 he left farming and embarked on a career as an archaeologist. He was already recording all his digs, and finds, in meticulous detail, in spidery handwriting illustrated with drawings, sometimes in notebooks that were clearly second-hand. A meeting with Guy Maynard, curator of Ipswich Museum, led to him being employed as an archaeological excavator. The Romans were an early obsession, and among sites he excavated over time were numerous pottery kilns and a villa at Stanton Chair Farm. In 1938 came the job that would propel him into the history books, although for some years his vital role was barely mentioned. He was employed by Edith Pretty, owner of Sutton Hoo, to investigate a series of mounds on her estate. Basil is described by people who knew him as unassuming, gentle and friendly, but he was ready to stand up for himself when he knew he was right he walked away from the early excavations rather than be dictated to because of a sceptical attitude of the ipswich museum president in 1939 he was invited to return a letter to may tells of the moment he realised the momentous nature of his find i have found the other end of the ship about eighty-four feet from one end to the other it must have been the ship of a king or person of very great importance for one of the largest warships of the time to be used. But once the archaeological establishment took over, Basil was sidelined. It must have hurt. Gilbert Burroughs, who got to know him in the 1950s, recalled he spoke about it on rare occasions. He didn't moan, but I think it did cut very, very deep, he said. May and Basil were a devoted couple, and it was she, fiercely proud of his achievements, more than he, who would speak out about the injustice. Now he is given full credit for his crucial part in the Sutton Hoo story. During the war, Basil worked for the Naffy and was also a special constable and a member of the ROC, which had an observation post on Bottersdale Common. He then worked for a time as a boiler stoker at Culford School, before being re-employed by Ipswich Museum until retiring aged 73. Basil died in 1977. May, who lived until the mid-1980s, said she would have liked him to be buried in the churchyard at Ricking Hall Superior, where his parents were laid to rest, but it had been closed to new burials. It was a very sad letter, says Sarah. I cried when I read it, and I cried when I wrote about it. Basil was cremated at Ipswich and his ashes scattered at the town's new cemetery. An entry in the Book of Remembrance reads simply, Brown, Basil, John Waite, died 1977, remembered with gratitude.
1: We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. I'm going to repeat the contact details for RNIB Connect Radio, which are Freeview 730 or online at www.rnib.com. Org dot UK forward slash Connect Hyphen Radio All Lower Case We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News talk will be back again next week, so until then from Sheila, Jill and Harvey, it's goodbye.
0: Goodbye. Listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Barry St Edmunds studio.